Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Thanks for listening today. General Motors pulling out of Oshawa, how it will affect the town, the province, and Ontario's auto industry. Hope you enjoy it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, lots to talk about today, including uh, General Motors shutting down their uh, plants uh, this time next year in Oshawa, but also in the United States as well. It looks like 14,000 workers uh, in North America will be affected, uh, but uh, closer to us, obviously, uh, 2,500 at the GM Oshawa plant. Canadian Press has learned uh, that uh, it is affecting thousands of jobs. A source familiar with the situation says the closure of the assembly plant is part of a shift of the company's global production. The Oshawa mayor, John Henry, says this closure will have a rippling effect uh, through his city. It won't be just an Oshawa-related issue. It's going to affect the province. Um, it's going to affect uh, the region. You know, the auto, the auto industry has been a big part of the province of Ontario for over 100 years. Here's what National Unifor Auto Director Dino Chiato had to say about it all. But it's all about greed. It's all about putting more in their pockets and doing uh, less with, uh, with capitalization and trying to bring people down to the lowest common denominator, and that's using places like Mexico, uh, southern states, the United States. Absolutely wrong. All right. Uh, it's a sad situation, no matter which way you look at this. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. We are surprised at this. Everybody seems to be blindsided. Well, I mean, I wasn't predicting it. I don't want to suggest that I had some special insight that the others didn't have. So, no, I didn't predict that they were going to announce this today. I have been working on a paper very slowly, unfortunately, because there's so many other things I've got on the go. But I've been working on a paper for over two years um, on the Canadian automotive production and uh, manufacturing industry. And my premise, and I published it as an op-ed in Diplomat Magazine, of all places, about a year and a half ago, sort of a summary, and I predicted that the long-term future of the auto industry manufacturing in, in Canada was dead. And I came to that conclusion, not because I was being apocalyptic. I'm a numbers guy, as I'm sure you know by now talking to me, Scott. I don't look at emotion and, and people giving emotional speeches. I look at hard data. <clears throat> and so what I did is I went to the Center for Automotive Manufacturing, which is an academic unit at the University of Michigan. And no, they're not on anybody's payroll. And they do these beautiful empirical analyses comparing the different um, areas of the auto industry. And, um, and they're widely accepted. They're very respected. And I had the data from them. It's not secret. It's public data. In North America, we'll leave out Mexico for a moment. Uh, Canada has the highest average when you factor in the wages and the benefits and the productivity. Canada Post, uh, Canada Post, I'm sorry, um, uh, Canada uh, was the highest, most expensive. Then what I called Detroit, which I meant loosely the Midwest, was the second highest. It was in between, and the cheapest, least expensive in North America was the American South, the uh, 10 states. There are now 10 states that have auto production plants, parts or auto production plants. They're around $45 U.S. per worker hour. Uh, the Midwest, meaning Detroit and Ohio and around there, is around 60, and Canada was uh, expressed in U.S. dollars. Canada was just over 70. So I wasn't surprised because we're a small market. We're not as productive as the U.S. Our wages are higher. And now, then along comes Trump, and I, I do believe that Trump's election exacerbated it. I am not saying this was only due to Donald Trump. I think it was 
partially. That is to say, he doesn't make America great again. Uh, American CEOs are very acutely aware that if they start closing plants outside of in the states and, and keeping them open outside of the U.S., they'll get attacked. They'll get tweeted by, by Trump. That being said, they're closing in the U.S. as well. Yes, they are. Because now, now let me move to part two of my sort of, I'm giving a very complex explanation or, or thesis or hype theory. General Motors is been, they went bankrupt, for goodness sake, in 2009. Let's not forget that, everybody. They are one of the weakest auto companies, and that's one of the things I use in my class for many, many years. This was the company that in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s was ranked number one or two as the largest capitalized company on the planet Earth. So they went from the biggest of the biggest of the biggest, the Exxon of the world, the Google of the world, they went uh, very gradually into bankruptcy in 2009. And so my, 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 uh, my point is, is, is that um, they, they have a lot of internal problems. And they, which culminated the bankruptcy, they were producing models and cars people didn't want. Their quality had gone down, 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 and this was confirmed. For any of your listeners who really uh, take offense, this was confirmed over and over in the resale values of GM cars versus cars in the same class. Uh, the resale value of those cars, so their quality had gone down, and now they've been basically since 2009 trying to reinvent themselves and 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 become stronger again, and then. On top of that, you look at the, they have to, they want to downsize. So you're going to say, where am I going to downsize? Well, I'm going to downsize from those regions that are more expensive, not less expensive. From the regions that have lower productivity, not higher productivity. Capitalists are rational. They're not crazy people. They want to make money. They want to maximize their revenues. They want to minimize their costs. And they want to maximize their profits. No question about it. And so there is a rationality in these plants to close. I will bet you any amount of money in the world, and I don't bet, that if I could get the data on those plants, because I'm a data guy, I'll bet you anything. Those plants are less. I didn't say they're not making money. I said I'll bet you they are relatively, comparatively less, doing less well than some other plants. It's like the NFL. Just because you're not in last place doesn't mean you're going to the Super Bowl. You can be a very good Tier 2 team and, you know, have five games won, five games lost, but you're not <laughs> you're not the Kansas City Chiefs. You're not the New Orleans Saints, okay? And these plants, I, I'm willing to bet, I do not believe these were their most profitable, successful plants because I don't believe CEOs go and kill off their most successful Enterprises. The union vows that the plants will remain open. Uh, you heard the clip, uh, I'm sure, that uh, from the union representative saying that they're lowering the bar, it's a race to the bottom, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Your thoughts yeah. on that? Um, what I'm worried about, um, and I was one of the few people that uh, did not support the bailout in 2009, and I believe me, I got an awful lot of emails that told me what a horrible human being I was. And uh, that has been squared away. That's all pay- paid off. No, 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 but I mean, uh, yeah. the logic, the logic. Right. I deal yeah. with the logic, not the decision. Right. And my argument then is the same now. We shouldn't be bailing out companies that aren't able to make it. That's the first point. The second point is they said they saved the auto industry. Well, that was nonsense because all the other auto industry uh, of the auto companies were making cars and doing very well. Thank you very much, including Honda in Canada, Toyota in Canada, and 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 so was Ford, and so were the other car companies. So 
you know, Hyundai, who have plants in Canada and the U.S. So the argument that we were saving the auto industry, if GM and Chrysler had gone down, the people that bought those cars would have switched when their car came up for renewal, meaning they had to buy a new car, they would have simply walked down the street and gone to one of the other dealers uh, called Ford or Volkswagen or, or Toyota or whatever. The second point is we're throwing good money after bad. And the third point is it's better to take that money. I'm not saying throw these workers over the cliff. Not at all. We should be taking the money, the billions that are, I'm predicting they will now roll out from government, Ontario and federally. They're going to roll out billions to try to bribe General Motors to stay there. I would rather they spent that money on these workers retraining them. And if they're too old to retrain but not yet ready to retire, you give them a bridge pension out of public funds. I'm talking the 58-year-old who doesn't qualify yet for a pension. Well, then basically you put them on a special pension. To, uh, because, you know, we can't, re- we can't, it's not the role of government to try to save General Motors or any car company. But they, first off, they don't have the skill sets to do so. The market is going to organize this. If the market, meaning you and me and millions of other Canadians and Americans don't want to buy GM cars, well, we can't make them buy GM cars. So what we have to do is make sure the workers are not uh, suffering but through public policy. But that doesn't mean we have to save the investors in General Motors or other companies that are, are, are failing. And in this instance, I think they're still trying to save General Motors. I still think it's got a lot of problems in it, notwithstanding what Jerry Diaz says. And uh, the fact that they're doing this massive downsizing today is further evidence of that. Where does this leave the Ontario auto industry? Well, as I predicted in my article that is not yet published, I will fully acknowledge that. And people can say, well, he's just making it up. But I have my drafts, and I've said it's going to incrementally decline, incrementally downsize as one plant after another plant after another plant closes. And I know So Ontario, say, it's done as a manufacturing center then as far as autos. That's what I believe. And yeah. before anyone says that, terrible, terrible, Australia, which is not a shabby country, it's, a very, it's right behind us. You know, one major English-speaking country, they exited automobile production about five years ago, and Australia has an excellent standard of living. Canada is a very diversified economy. Southern Ontario is even more diversified, and we are not going to disappear. Canada is not going to disappear. Oshawa is not going to disappear. And so, yes, provide help to Oshawa. Yes, provide help to the workers who are going to be so dis, uh, you know, displaced, for sure. They need to have uh, government assistance. But I'm saying assist the worker, not the company. That should be our mantra, our policy. So is that it for this General Motors? Like General Motors has had a huge footprint in Oshawa yeah. for a long time. Is that Absolutely. it? It's done? Fact, I mean, will they, will, they, will they piecemeal something here and, and drag it out another few more years? It depends on the amount. I'm being very crude and I'm blunt. It depends how much we bribe them, uh, we, the government of Canada and the government of Ontario. Um, and this is where, when you and I talked before about NAFTA over the last year and a half, I kept arguing, get the thing over quickly, give him some victories so to generate some goodwill between Canada and the U.S., because we're going to need it down the road. It's not just a one-off negotiation. We have multiple relationships with the United States, Canada and the U.S. We have bridges where $2 billion a day crosses over. The U.S. Could, tomorrow could just shut down our economy by saying, we're going to investigate every truck by hand before it can cross over. They have many ways. So we need their goodwill. 
this is a time when we would like their goodwill. I don't think we're going to get it because I don't think the relationship is warm and cuddly between our government and their government. Uh, on yet, that note, what's Donald Trump's reaction to this? Because, again, there's 14,000 GM workers uh, that, are da- that are down. It's only 2,500 here. So right. how is he going to sell the closing of those plants? How is that making America great again? He's probably going to argue out of both sides of his mouth, I think, because he's certainly done it before. And he's going to say, see, they're closing the other plants um, and not just our plants. And then he will then condemn the fact that they closed those plants unless GM has an announcement up its sleeve to build some new plants. Um, I, I suspect General Motors is migrating to the U.S. South. I, I should disclose, I, and I don't consult anybody, but I, I have a timeshare in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and we've been going there for 10 years, and we drive all around the region. We don't just sit there and lie in one place. We drive around and travel around into Alabama and Mississippi and all these states that have car plants. And why I'm telling you this story, Scott, people don't realize if they only just go to the beach and, and then come back home, they don't see this. Everything is lower in the U.S. South. The land is lower. The wages are lower. The municipal taxes are lower. The groceries in the grocery store. I'm not just comparing it to Canada, because we go into upstate New York. The gasoline is 50 cents cheaper a gallon in in South Carolina than it is in New York State. The food is cheaper in in South Carolina than it is in New York State. What I'm trying to say is the whole uh, ecosystem, the whole economy of the southern U.S. is a different economy from the Northeast, which is a much more expensive expensive economy, higher taxes, higher wages. And what's happened in the last 30 years, third of a century, very slowly, incrementally, is both foreign car companies and Detroit, Detroit meaning the big three, have been opening more and more new plants across the U.S. South in these 10 states that have actually formed like a partnership, a consortium. And they are attracting I mean, look at the Bombardier plane. Where did it go? To the U.S. South. And, and so it's not just Canada that's losing on this. The U.S. Northeast is not doing well. Detroit and Ohio, they're the Rust Belt states. They're losing these jobs to the U.S. South. These jobs are overwhelmingly right-to-work states, and I'm not trying to advocate for right-to-work. I'm just stating a fact for everybody. But it's not just right-to-work states. The wages are lower. Yes, probably because right-to-work. The food costs are lower. The cost of land per acre is lower. The municipalities are very aggressive at providing support. Everything is, their whole cost of production is lower. Not as low as Mexico, but believe you me, they're a lot closer to Mexico, or significantly closer, Mm. I should say. Than is, uh, than is the U.S. Midwest around Ohio and Detroit. And, and they solved it. I think they solved the Mexico problem as a competitor by the latest trade, the, the new NAFTA, that said they must pay workers at least $16 an hour if they want to export into the U.S. We just got about a minute left here, and I want to ask you, what do you say to what the union leader said, that this is nothing but capitalistic greed, that they're lowering the bar, that we can't let them do this? I mean, First first off, we can't stop them. Uh, There's no law that says you can't close close a company if you're losing money or not. Um, secondly, I mean, that's, a, that's his uh, spin on it, but that's the market economy ever yeah. since the beginning of time. Companies don't go into business to lose money. And if a multinational has a choice of investing in multiple countries, it's going to invest in the countries that are the most attractive, not the least attractive. I would say I'm not blaming this all on the workers in case anyone's thinking that. I'm sure they, they GM, looked at the fact that our CPP premiums are going up, which are paid for by the employer. Our minimum wages are going up, paid for by the employer. Carbon taxes are going up. So they looked at this and said, you know, 
the climate there in Ontario, which is a small market, and it's not our primary market, and the productivity is lower, and the costs are going up to retain these workers, we're out of here. We're going to go to the to the U.S. where the exact opposite is happening. No carbon tax, minimum wages are not going up, taxes are going down. So I am saying it's partly, uh, I think, part of the climate of Canada is not as hospitable to business as is the U.S., and that became part of their consideration. I don't want your listeners to think I'm blaming this all on the workers. I'm not. I'm saying they looked at the whole package and said, you know, it's more we're going to optimize our resources by not by closing in Canada and going to some other locations and and staying there. If not opening up new plants, we're going to remain there. And I think that this is part of that. Yes, yes, they're going to be doing it to maximize their profitability. And and uh, we have to become, that's the reality of this new competitive world, and we have to confront it instead of deny it. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jennifer French is with us, NDP MPP for Oshawa and on the line now. Jennifer, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, I'm glad to give it. What is the what is the feeling in your town today? It must be terrible. Um, it is, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, it, we've got a community meeting um, at two o'clock with the workers, and um, you know, kind of figure out where where we go from there in terms of doing doing our part uh, to stand up for these these great jobs in our community. Um, if there is any way forward to um, you know, change GM's mind or, or you know, fight to keep the jobs that are here. Um, that's that's our first uh, that's our first path. Um, you know, I've, we're dealing with uh, a province and, and a federal government who, you know, I believe that they are disappointed, um, but they're talking about damage control. They're not talking about doing our best to, to keep these jobs here or really to challenge GM as to figure out why they're leaving when we have such a state-of-the-art, fantastic facility here, you know, with excellent workers and products, um, and we are ready for the next, you know, the next phase, the, the bright future. And so to not even be part of, of that conversation um, is really, really tough. What can government do to leverage uh, a company to, to, to keep the jobs here? What, what can they do? I don't know, um, but I'd like to see them try. You know, this is the day of the announcement, um, the day, and we're reeling. Um, but to hear, I wasn't in question period today. I watched it uh, like others have because I'm here in Oshawa. Um, you know, to to hear the premier say on the first day of the announcement, the ship has left the dock, you know, and now we're looking to the damage control part. Um, well, where is the where is the challenge to GM, you know, to... Um, to figure out a way to stay in Oshawa. Uh, There are a hundred reasons to stay. Um, There's a hundred years of investment um, for this company here in Oshawa. We have invested, um, you know, we as as taxpayers in the country, we as a community and as workers, um, and for them just to, for GM just to shrug it off and say thanks for the memories, you know, we're out, um, is beyond disappointing. Um, And I would hope I would have hoped that the, the province and the federal government um, wouldn't give up without a fight, especially on the first day of the announcement. You know, I wish that we had heard we're going to see if there is a way to keep these jobs here. Did anyone see this coming? I mean, this seems to have blindsided everyone. That's, 
that's how it feels. Um, that's that's how it unfolded um, for for me and for um, you know a lot of our um, community folks. I got a call saying, "Have you heard uh, anything about GM leaving?" You know, we we heard it from media, and I said, "No, I haven't. I'll make some calls." And then folks started to call around, and about 15 or 20 minutes later, um, we saw it on TV, and they were breaking live from Park Road. Um, so we were watching it all unfold alongside our community, which. Um, is not how things should happen ever. Um, in the middle of the night on a Sunday is pretty tough to take. Um, anyway, it, it it's insult to injury, right? You know, people are, are facing an uncertain future. Um, Oshawa has never been one to back down from a fight, and if there is a fight to be waged, um, we're going to. Does this come down to uh, Jennifer? Is uh, obviously this is it's business. It's about cost. Unfortunately. Oshawa is thrown under the bus here, but mm-hmm. is is do we just have to face the fact that it's cheaper to build cars in other places, and this could be it for the Ontario auto auto industry? As certainly we've known it in the past. Um, I can't argue, um, you know, with everything that we're all hearing and reading. Um, you know, there yeah. there are facts and figures and all sorts of things to be considered. And if I hear the term global restructuring one more time, mm. I'm, you know, mm. um, and I, I say that, and I don't mean to be flip about it because I recognize there's a big picture. But when I look out my window, I see my community. And there, it's very disappointing that a company that, that started small and, and literally grew up in Oshawa and even has a global, um, you know, even has a global company, when it started here, um, to just turn their back and, and shrug and say, you know, thank you, but that's it, that's all, um, is very, is as I said, it's it's very hard to take. Um, looking at the big picture, it, it is really tough for me to distance it from the local community picture. And I would argue, um, you know, sort of the, the premise that they're that they're that this is just the and without really investigating. I was in Oshawa, um, or was in GM two, about two weeks ago for their 100th anniversary, and we did a plant tour, um, and the folks there were showcasing, you know, the, the modern investments and the robotics and the tremendous technology, and we're ready for the future. Um, you know, GM has been talking about a green and efficient um, future in terms of vehicles and what that future will look like and there is no reason that GM couldn't be a part of that you know it's not it's it's not it is up to the task so the fact that they have chosen not to um, make whatever upgrades or or fine-tuning is needed um, is really disappointing and the fact that the government can't even tell me why they've just said well they said that they're done so I guess they're done let's Mm. let's talk about in a year from now and how we just do damage control. What about the fact that uh, later on, uh, obviously this announcement broke over the weekend that, that this was happening in Oshawa, and then we find out today, you know, the complete information and that it involves over 14,000 employees in North America, uh, 2,500 to 3,000 in Oshawa, and obviously the rest in the United States. Does that change the discussion since there's others closing in the United States as well, three or four there? Um, if there's one part I want to take from that, it is that, um, you know, this is not because Oshawa couldn't keep up, you know, that, that, that yeah. Oshawa is part of a broader conversation, yeah. that Oshawa is, 
you know, like our workers are fantastic here and the product is amazing. We meet our targets. You know, GM has has publicly, you know, celebrated um, Oshawa as a plant. Um, I realize that the, the broader, um, you know, face of innovation and, and vehicles is changing, um, but I refuse to accept that, um, that there is no conversation to be had locally about these jobs. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know whether that makes me naive. You know, a lot of folks are saying, well, come on, you know, a corporation doesn't owe you anything. Well, this particular corporation started here. Um, you know, Oshawa Carriage Works was 140 years ago and GM Canada 100 you know, a hundred years ago, that's a lot of investment um, in both directions. You know, that is a, a lot of history, um, and to to think that there's no community, um, you know, no community responsibility, um, yeah, maybe that makes me naive. But it's really hard to take when these are not numbers. Um, these are my friends. These are my neighbors. These are my, you know, these are workers and families, and the businesses that will be impacted by the you know, the fewer dollars spent in the community and the the supply chain and spin-off jobs, which are countless, you know, um, it's it's devastating. It is. And, you know, you, you want to fight someone, we will fight because there are still um, good quality jobs here, the kind of jobs that, you know, are, are, yes, of course, they're hard to come by. You can raise a family on them and support a community and grow a community on them. So we're going to fight to defend them. Uh, what about, you talked about spinoff industries and, and how much that affects uh, the area. What do you think this means for not only spinoff industry in Oshawa, but for the rest of Ontario and the Ontario auto industry for that matter? Well, you know what? The auto industry is just such a huge part of Canada's um, economy and always has been. Um, so the the ripples are going to be felt immediately, you know, through the broad, like through the the region. Not everyone who works at GM, um, you know, lives in Oshawa. They they come from Peterborough and Whitby and all over. So there's that immediate feel. Of course, the the businesses, um, supply chain, like there across the region. Um, but this is like taxpayers across Canada, you know, have uh, a vested interest in automotive doing well um, and and it being an industry that is um, able to succeed and and what that looks like as that industry changes um, I would have thought that we would have you know provincial and federal government saying let's figure out an automotive strategy for crying out loud for four years we've been asking for that we haven't had one so are there pieces that that we um, have missed along the way maybe um, you know, it's it's hard to point to one thing, but it again, it comes back to this is devastating. Um, but Oshawa is known for, you know, building fantastic vehicles, and also uh, they're not going to back down from a fight. You know, we saw that the workers walked out today, and we will see where we go from here. But they are bound and determined to to fight for their jobs and ultimately their community. Jennifer French has been with us, NDP MPP for Oshawa. Jennifer, thank you so much for the time. Good luck, and uh, and we'll see what happens at the other end. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for hanging on. Obviously, we're going to talk about something different here. Uh, okay. But with this news conference, I uh, have to revolve around this. Your thought on what has happened in Oshawa and the response from Jerry Diaz. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Jerry Diaz's thunder aside, which was which was to be expected, and naturally, he's furious based on the views and values of the people that he represents, the workers and the auto workers in Oshawa. I understand all that. Uh, the real problem is that he can say all that, and certainly over the next year, his union, Unifora, can meet with different organizations, meet with the federal government, provincial government, GM, whoever, the ultimate thing is that he doesn't accept, as terrible as the situation in Oshawa is, and we're all frustrated for everyone because it's going to hurt jobs, it's going to hurt that local economy, and it's going to affect Canada as well. We all know that. The fact is that the owners, you know, GM owns that plant. The workers don't. And if GM says they're closing it, and that's the end of the discussion, we're not having any final arrangements, we're not renegotiating, well, guess what? It's done. So the best thing that they could do is what sort of the Ontario government and indirectly the federal government have offered, which are, at least in this province, retraining programs, which I think are obviously very important because you have to move forward in life, not look backward, and as well to sort of stagger the EI benefits where they'll be topped up a bit for a period of time to ensure that the roughly 3,500 auto workers who are affected by it will at least be able to get through a certain amount of months and move forward, which is important for everyone. The whole thing is messy, though, from the very start to finish. It doesn't matter what side you're on, Scott. It's not a positive thing. It doesn't obviously add to the way we, you know, we cherish the country, we look at enterprise, and we see how things operate. To be perfectly honest, General Motors has handled the situation terribly from start to finish. There's no question of that. And even though I don't support unions and I don't support people like Mr. Diaz and Unifor, I get their frustration, I get their anger, because I think most Canadians feel that way because it's been just handled so poorly. But you know what the real key to all this is? Look at all the money we gave to the auto industry, including in this country. Yeah. Look at all the money we gave to GM. Think about it. I don't care whether you're a conservative, a liberal, or a socialist who's listening right now. Think about it. If this is what a government bailout does not accomplish... Why do we keep doing it? Yeah. And that's the key. Uh, listening to uh, the president of Unifor, uh, lots of spirit, but man, as I try to break it down, there doesn't appear to be a lot of wiggle room or hope or, or, or fact at all. Um, you oh. know, even talking about how he wants General Motors to stand up to this agreement right? Um, we, for the life of this agreement that they would keep this plant open, but that's to 2020, isn't it? Yeah, it is to 2020. So, no, so really, it sounds like a lot of rhetoric, but that's what is. they've done. They've kept it open till the end of January, or so the end of December 2019. That's 2019. 20. That's 2020, or sorry, 2019. 2019. That, they're they're mumbling one or the other. It'll probably be end of 2019. So before Christmas of 2019. Exactly. So, and and the deal that uh, Diaz is talking about is till 2020. So they pretty much fulfilled their obligations. Now they're bolting, aren't they? Yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously Diaz has to try to... Whether that's good or bad, I mean, I'm not saying, but it's like he's, he's we're going to hold them to this deal. Well, they're there, are they not? Like, yeah, that's, they are. Yeah. They're at the finish line. Yeah, you're holding to a deal that already exists and is in place. No, I agree with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But then, look, again, I, I get the anger, I get the frustration, and I can obviously give a pass to Diaz and Unifor, who have been privy to a lot of information that probably you, I, and others have not seen, and God knows what's been discussed behind the scenes. So I get that part of it, and I'll give them a pass for today. But the thunder Diaz puts forward, and this is his style, and I know that, and lots of 
union leaders, and I've met Buzz Hargrove and Sid Ryan and others over the years. They have their own style, and they, they put it forward, and that's fine. That's the way the game is played. Diaz probably knows behind the scenes that he can push, he can fight, he can mobilize, he can do lots of different things. But at the end of the day, there's no way he can stop this plant from shutting. He just can't. It's a question of whether GM has a change of heart, which doesn't seem to be in the cards. They've already told both the provincial government and the federal government, no, that's it. Or, and this is unfortunately something that some people have been circulating around social media, whether the government, that being the federal government, wants to get involved yet again, which I certainly hope they don't want to do. That's my next question. What can government do here? Many have said the fact that GM didn't come to the table this time and say, hey, we're in trouble. We're either going to, we need something, we need a deal here. We need a, we need, a, you know, some sort of olive branch. Otherwise, we're bolting. The fact that they didn't do that here, what does yeah. that say? Or is that all part of the negotiation? Well, besides the obvious ideological position, I don't like governments getting involved in these sorts of things. This is just sort of the give and take of negotiation. And obviously, when Jerry Diaz is standing in front of his workers, he has to put on a tough face, a brave face, and a brave front. I get all of that, and that's perfectly fine. He has to motivate his workers to be behind him, or else what in God's name is he going to do for the next year? I fully understand that. But for what does government have to do? I don't know, and it worries me. See, if it were my old friend and boss, and I know people are going to shake their heads, but Stephen Harper, and he is, we wouldn't, you know, we would be sympathetic, but we wouldn't be looking for any more government handouts, and quite frankly, we wouldn't even consider them. Premier Doug Ford has already directly said there will be no more money for General Motors in Ontario, and you can't blame him for that, because what, as I said before, right at the top, what happened this previous government bailout clearly did nothing in the grand scheme of things. Now, as for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, I don't know what the Prime Minister plans to do. I mean, unfortunately, we've seen what he's done with pipelines and how he's got involved. I hope Hmm. to God he doesn't think that this is acceptable for the federal government to not only get involved, but to actually save the plant outright. Because that may be a bargaining ploy behind the scenes that Unifor may use. It may even be something that General Motors, they, they sort of shrug their hands and say, well, look, if someone wants to buy from us, great, but you have to offer us X dollar, X amount of dollars. I certainly hope that taxpayer money is not used for this because that's not the answer. It's not the solution. It's closer to what Premier Ford and indirectly Prime Minister Trudeau are saying, which is retraining and extending EI benefits for people then to move on, get a new job in the workforce, and make a better life or a good life for themselves and their families. That's how you have to do it. Is Not this rely a, on government handouts. Is this a turning point for Ontario? Is it a turning point for manufacturing, a turning point for the auto industry here? That's an interesting question, and I've been thinking about that too. I don't know. I think because it's so early, and this is only really day one or day two, if you'd like, because we started hearing about it last night, it sort of remains to be seen. But I think the, where the turning point may actually occur is how people, the average person, reacts to it. We know what the unions are going to say. We know what General Motors is going to say. We know what the workers are going to say. We even know what the people of Oshawa are going to say. I think everybody outside is really the key. Are they going to say that, well, Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals have to get involved? It has to be done. There's no choice about it because we can't sacrifice that many jobs being lost. Or do we sort of sit back and think, as awful as this is and as terrible as it is for the community of Oshawa, which it is, and for the auto workers at the GM plant, which it also is, then maybe we have to start realizing that there have to be different ways 
to handle these sorts of things, that being a business closure, then always looking to government for either a handout, a bailout, or something of the, to that effect. That could be the changing point. It's a question of whether people still want to have the nanny state in place, or they start to realize that, you know what, no matter how many taxpayer dollars we put beside a failing enterprise, it's ultimately going to fail no matter what. It may not fail that day, but it's going to fail down the road. And that could be the key to a real change of attitude, not just in Oshawa, not just in Ontario, but in Canada in general. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left, so it's got to be a short one here, Michael. But what about the United States and the fact that they've lost four plants there? How is Donald Trump going to react to this? Does that change the discussion? <laughs> well, I mean, he's going to obviously come out and directly say, look, I told you this about government bailouts years ago, and they don't work. Mm. And certainly he's not wrong here. I agree. But then again, a lot of conservatives and real conservatives, unlike Mr. Trump, who's more of a populist, have said this for a long time, too. But what is he going to do? Well, he's got to also play it out carefully. Remember, the Rust Belt, which is one of his roots to success that he had in the 2016 presidential election. Yes, there's a lot of farming communities there, but there's also steel, there's also aluminum, and there are also auto workers. So he's got to be sort of careful how this plays out. And for him and, his, and the U.S. White House, I think it's very simple what they're going to do. They're going to push this all onto GM. This is completely GM's fault. You know, the United States and even Canada tried to play it out. You know, even though we didn't like the way Mexico handled things, this was not their issue. This is all GM's fault. And if you keep pushing it that way, yes, people will start looking to Trump for either answers or blame, depending on what side of the fence you're on. But that's his best defense. And I think that's what all governments, including our federal government and our provincial government, are going to do. It's GM's doing. You know, we were there. We were a part of it. Some, in some incarnation, we were, we were involved in it, even if it wasn't particularly our government at that point in time. But at the end of the day, you have to look where blame is. And the blame is not with the workers, not even with the union. It's with GM. Michael Tobis been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. No worries. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 500 migrants were on the Mexican, uh, Mexican side of the U.S. border yesterday. Overwhelming police blockages, which forced a temporary closure of that U.S.-Mexican border. Tear gas also deployed at the immigrants who had rushed the fence uh, trying to get into the United States. Talk more about all of this. Edward Alden is with us. Bernard, uh, Bernard L. Schwartz, Senior F- uh, Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relationships, specializing in U.S. Uh, economic competitive, uh, competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy. Edward is with us now. Edward, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, great to be with you, Scott. Thanks. So it, this is a fascinating story in the sense that uh, Donald Trump was talking a lot about the caravan uh, prior to the midterm elections down there, and many said he was fear-mongering and such, and uh, that they were hundred miles or hundreds of miles away from the border. Uh, what has changed? What happened over the weekend, and and how does how does the footage that we've seen and the images that we've seen change this this discussion now? Well, I mean, I think two things have changed. One, lots of people, some of them parts of the caravan, others just coming on their own, have arrived at the border now. And so you have shelters in Tijuana on the Mexican side of the border that are overflowing. There's just not enough room for all the people who are arriving in Tijuana from Central America and trying to get into the United States. I think the second thing that may have triggered this is news of negotiations between the Trump administration 
and the incoming Mexican government. And, and the reporting suggests that Mexico might be willing to house Central Americans while their asylum claims in the United States are being considered. And because there's such a huge backlog in the immigration courts here in the U.S., that could be a year, two years, three years. And so none of the migrants coming up from Central America want to face the possibility of looking at a two- or three-year wait in Mexico while their claim to live in the United States is adjudicated. So I think those were the, the, the two things that triggered the, uh, the events of the weekend. What started this caravan? How did it set off? What, how, did, how did we get to where we are? I mean, broadly, we got to where we are because these northern triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, are some of the most dangerous countries in the world. Murder rates are very high. Gang activity, most of it associated with the drug appetite in the United States, is very high. You have a lot of people who are fleeing dangerous situations. There are probably also a lot of people who are just fleeing looking for a better life, you know, um, Wages are lousy, living is uncertain, and, and hoping to get into the United States. And so you've just seen this kind of escalate. We, I mean, we've seen this happen in the past. We saw this with Mexican migration over 25, 30 years. There's a kind of chain effect. As more people arrive, then you've got a relative in the United States. You've got somebody making money who can help finance your trip. There is a, is a kind of chain reaction effect. And, and unless this gets cut off in some way, and this is what the Trump administration is trying to do in some, in some rather forceful ways, then it's likely to continue. How do you do this and play the politics of it all? I mean, does this reinforce Donald Trump's position on migration, on immigration? I mean, it shouldn't because he's messing it up terribly, right? I mean, at the end of the Obama administration, you had some things that long term might have done some good. Uh, considering these people's asylum claims closer to where they live, you know, in Mexico or in Costa Rica or in their home countries, if they're not in such danger that they have to flee, that could have helped. Aid to these Central American countries to try to build their economy, that could have helped. Donald Trump has shut all this stuff off and just turned it into a sort of war of force. You know, we can build bigger fences, we can use tear gas at the border, we can bully the Mexicans, and we can try to force an end to this problem. Well, so far, that strategy has made the problem far worse. I mean, we are seeing record numbers of people arriving from Central America at the U.S. border. So, so far, the Tough Guy Act has backfired. How do you Perhaps explain get- How do you explain that this all happening of late? Is, is the caravan and all of this happening because of Donald Trump and his policies, or would these people have been on uh, your doorstep, whether whoever was president? Well, I think unless you deal with the problems in these countries, then, then that's going to continue. I mean, certainly the Obama administration dealt with 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 big increases in the number of central american migrants there's a there's a sort of annual cycle to it you tend to see more in the cooler months it's way too hot in the summer to try to cross so there's some of that but i also think that there's kind of a panic setting in here that the administration is going to cut off this route um i mean trump has been talking about basically trying to make it impossible for people coming from Central America to seek asylum in the United States. And so I think that creates a kind of panic that says to people, look, this is my last chance, right? If I don't get into the United States now, that opportunity is going to be cut off for me in the future. And I think that's why we're seeing the escalating numbers. 
Uh, many said that, including in the media, that this was not an issue, that Donald Trump was fear-mongering and that this wouldn't happen and that these people were far away and that they weren't harmful, that they were uh, uh, just people looking for a place to, to live, uh, as you have described. So uh, obviously, clearly, it is an issue. How do you balance the politics of this? Because... Those that are supporting Trump, you know, will say, well, geez, you guys said that there was nothing happening. And clearly, look, there is something happening. They're fighting at the borders. They are here, so to speak. How does this play into the politics of all of this? Except that, you know, the problem with that explanation, and I think, you know, it'll sell to a lot of people, absolutely, when they look at the images and the tear gas. The problem is Trump is creating the problem, right? You could, I mean, the process is, is there are a lot of problems with it right now, but you could let these people in, you could process their claims, you could send them home if they lose their claims, you could do this in an orderly way. But because he's created, in effect, a national security crisis out of this, uh, Trump doesn't want to do it in an orderly way. He wants a big show of force at the border. And so by making all these threats of, of shutting off the possibility for these people to come and make their claims, He's, in effect, created the crisis. They're panicking. They're trying to get into the country quickly. And then, of course, U.S. officials are using force to respond. But if you look at the politics of it, he may well benefit from it. He'll be able to say, look, you know, these are lawless people, and they're trying to storm the United States, and we're doing what we have to do. So you're saying that because he's saying we're going to close the border, instead of making – instead of of, – distracting people away from what's going on and and instead of uh, discouraging them from coming coming this is actually encouraging in other words the door is closing we have to get in quick before it does yep you got it if this you know if this was being processed as it normally is in an orderly fashion it wouldn't shut off the flow but you wouldn't get this kind of panic reaction of people trying to get in really quickly before they think the door is going to be shut. So, so this is a problem created by the Americans. There's no question about that. So uh, what do we know? What, can, what do we know of the people that are in the caravan, that the people that, that, that are coming in? Are they people uh, uh, that are uh, in fear of their own country? Are they, in fact, refugees? Are they asylum seekers just looking for a better way of life? Um, because again, here here's the issue about controlled borders coming up again, and you know people waiting in line and doing it the right way, other people getting in. So, what do we know about this group, or is it just yeah. is it a mix of everything? I mean, it's a mix. It's a complicated question. I think if you dissected it, you would find that probably a majority are economic refugees. They're people who can't make a decent living for themselves in Central America and are trying to make lives better for themselves and their families. That was the reason the Mexicans came for years. I think that's the driving factor. Just behind that, I think there are a lot of people who are fleeing gang violence. I think there's no question. A lot of people fleeing gang violence. The problem is the way U.S. asylum law is written, fleeing gang violence doesn't really qualify you for asylum. I mean, most of these cases are eventually rejected by the courts. You have to show under asylum law that you're facing persecution for a set of beliefs or because of the kind of person you are, your membership in a group. Just the fact that you live in a violent country with with violent drug gangs doesn't qualify you for asylum. So the, the number of people who kind of genuinely qualify under the narrowly written rules is fairly small. That said, if they get in, because of these long delays in court processing, they're looking at a two- or three-year period where they can live safely in the United States. And then the fact is, and Trump's right about this one, 
even people who lose their court cases, very often they're not going back home. They just disappear and become part of the undocumented population here in the United States. So there's no question, question the system is broken, and it was broken long before Trump became president. He's just made it worse. So what is the long-term answer here? I mean, because as you mentioned, this is an excuse for, for Donald Trump just to, you know, uh, lock the windows and doors and pull down the curtains. You got it. The long-term answer is boring government stuff. So, you know, aid to Central America, processing more of these cases close to where people are living, hiring a lot more immigration judges in the United States so that you can deal with these cases promptly. If you could do the adjudication in a month or two months, then you could keep people in some kind of custody, right? You're not going to jail people for two years, certainly not families. But if you're talking a month or six weeks, you can hold people until their cases are decided. If they succeed and they get asylum status, they stay and they go on to become good Americans. If they lose, then the government deports them immediately. That's the systemic overhaul that's needed. But it's boring government stuff. And this administration doesn't do boring government stuff well. It does crises and Twitter. Uh, why, I'll play devil's advocate here. If Donald Trump is certainly creating the illusion that these people are not wanted here, why are they coming? Or is that just aggravating the situation in the sense that, well, we're all going to come, and if so many of us come, you can't control us? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we talked about some of the short-term aggravations, people fearing that the door is going to be closed. But I think, you know, if you, if you stand back from it, what this tells you is how desperate a lot of these people's lives are, right? They're either, they either have such an utter lack of economic opportunity or they're so genuinely scared for their safety that they're willing to make the long and not particularly safe journey across Mexico uh, and, and try to get into a country that doesn't want them because that's better than what awaits them back home. Um, you know, I mean... You know, the U.S., Canada, we've learned this lesson historically, right? You can't wall yourself off from the world. You know, if there are problems in our hemisphere, I mean, we haven't even talked about Venezuela and might, what might happen there. If there are problems in your hemisphere and you just ignore them and say, we want to shut our borders, we don't want to deal with it, those problems aren't going to go away. They're going to show no. up at your borders anyway, and you're going to have to deal with it. Does this validate Donald Trump's position, therefore more divisiveness in the United States? I mean, I think it might validate it politically, because as you say, you know, people are going to look at the images on television. They say there's violence at our border. We've got to shut it down further. So there's no question this is ripe for a demagogue of the sort that, that President Trump unfortunately is. You know, what I hope is that is that that people will look and will say, well, you know, actually, we had a problem when Obama was president, but it isn't as big a problem as it is right now. So what is the Trump administration doing wrong that this problem keeps getting worse? I fear most people won't take that step back and ask that question, but that's the right question to ask. Why did, uh, you know, and being in the media, you know, it's troubling to ask these questions, but why did the media try to convince everyone that Trump was fear-mongering and that these people were hundreds of miles from the border and that this would never happen? Because now that just plays into his hands and the whole fake news thing. I mean, I get your point. I, I mean, I think he was fear-mongering. You know, the caravan is full of criminals and terrorists and all this. I mean, I think that was fear-mongering. There's no question it was ginned up 
during the yeah but to counter that but to counter that by saying oh it doesn't even exist they're like way down the other end of the world man they're not even coming here you know i I mean doesn't it make them just as bad as him i think that's i think that's unfair i think there was actually a lot of coverage of the caravan and you know when it was happening during the campaign they were moving kind of slowly and then Mm. they all got on buses and the mexican government kind of facilitated their movement north there's got to be an interesting story there of why the mexicans made it as easy as they did i mean you know this i'm surprised donald trump just doesn't open up the border load up the buses and just send them right up to canada well, you know, <laughs> you're joking, but but the truth is, this is yeah. not a problem from which Canada is immune, right? You're yep. seeing more yep. and more absolutely from the United States crossing illegally into Canada because Canada's got its own loopholes in yep. its legal system, right? You know, you cross the border illegally into Canada, and they've got to process you and 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 listen to your application. Whereas if you try to come through the legal port, that avenue gets closed. So Canada's got its own set of problems here, and. And I think there's no question as the crackdown here continues, you're going to see a lot more. I mean, there, there's this group of folks who are here now from Honduras and other places under what's called temporary protected status. It was given because of natural disasters in those places. The Trump administration is eliminating that. Um, in, over the course of, of 2019, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people lose their status in the United States. You can bet that some of those are going to try to make their way up to Canada. This is not just going to be our problem. It's going to be your problem, too, I'm afraid. And we're seeing that already uh, through open holes in the border. Um, closing borders to control this. Donald Trump said he won't think twice about shutting it down. How long can you do that? Um, and, and is that that's obviously not a long-term solution. Well, some of your listeners probably remember what happened after 9-11 when the U.S. government didn't close the border. They just went to what's called a level one alert at which every car was inspected and every uh, foot traveler interrogated coming across. I mean, within 24 hours, you had a 12-hour lineup at the borders from Canada coming down to the United States. I mean, these are the most closely integrated borders in the world. you got you know, millions and millions of dollars of goods, uh, hundreds of thousands of people crossing back and forth any day. You try to shut the border with Mexico, my guess is that lasts about 12 hours, and then you realize that you've created an unholy mess and you got to open them up again. So what happens in the next few weeks, in the next six weeks or so? How, how does this manifest itself? What happens? Does the caravan slow down? Does, it only, does this problem only intensify? What happens in the, in the short term? I mean, I think there's a couple of possibilities. There's this negotiation with Mexico, and the Mexicans may agree to become a kind of holding tank for asylum seekers in the United States. If that happens, I think what we actually see is we see more people trying to cross illegally. Um, the Trump administration has said they won't process people coming illegally, but the courts are going to shut that down. The Ninth Circuit in California has already said you can't do that. U.S. law is quite explicit on that subject. So that makes its way to the Supreme Court. That's not weeks, but but months. I, I think in the short run, this crisis continues because you've got a lot of people kind of locked up on the Mexican side of the border now who want into the United States, and the U.S. isn't letting them in. So I, I think it continues. One interesting possibility, the Mexicans, this is kind of fascinating. I don't know how this plays out. The Mexicans are saying, look, if you want to stay, you can stay. I mean, Mexico is is past its big baby boom. Its manufacturing economy is very healthy. They need people in all these factories along the border. And they've actually said to a lot of Central Americans, you want to stay here in Mexico, we'll hire you. 
So mm. maybe that becomes a more attractive option for some people. Is this also leverage for Donald Trump's wall, especially to Mexico? You get a handle on this or we'll put a wall up and we'll get a handle on this. I mean, what does this do for the whole wall discussion? I mean, I, I think the Mexicans want to negotiate because they realize, you know, the wall is not the real threat. The threat was your previous question, which is a temporary shutdown of the border and the chaos that would create. I mean, the wall is is silly, right? It would go in areas where most people are not crossing. I mean, there's 750 miles of the border. It's heavily fenced already. And those are the places that people are crossing. Um, the wall is just a political talking point. The Congress is never going to fund it. But but the, the shutdown threat is certainly enough to have gotten the Mexicans' attention. And, and the fact that they're willing to negotiate on this issue, which the Mexican government is not in the past ever willing to consider, does, I suppose, tell you that, that, that Trump's hard line is 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 changing at least some things so far i would argue for the negative but maybe if there's a deal with mexico you can restore some kind of order in the process so uh, is there any point in this as you said uh, you, you still feel he has created more problems than he has solved but at what point can donald trump say see i told you i'm right look what's happening here well you know if he gets a deal with mexico and and you have as a result of that, a big decline in people coming into the United States seeking asylum and a more orderly process for those waiting on the Mexican side of the border, that would be a big win. Um, but, I mean, if you really look honestly at, at Trump's foreign policy, there aren't that many big wins so far. I mean, the new NAFTA with Canada and Mexico is probably one. Um, you know, they created a lot of storm and drong, and at the end of the day, they came away with a deal. You know, so far, you know, U.S.-China on trade, most of the trading relations, and clearly what's going on in the border is, is, is that Trump has generated a lot more chaos. The question is whether he can pull a deal out of that that actually makes things better. Uh, I think the odds are against it on this one, but if he could do that, he could rightly claim some kind of victory. Edward Alden has been with us. Bernard L. Bernard L. Schwartz, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Edward, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Nice talking with you, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.